Welcome everyone, here is Carnegie Moscow Center English Podcast. My name is Alex Kapuy, I'm a senior fellow and host, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by an old friend and a great colleague, Yanka Ertel, who heads the Asia program at ESFR, the European Council for Foreign Relations. Welcome, Yanka. And Asasha, thank you for having me. We are here to talk about the changing attitude in Europe towards China and Russia, and the Chinese-Russian Entente, quasi-alliance, marriage of convenience, whatever way is possible to frame this relationship between two major powers in Eurasia. I think that the focus and the spotlight on both China and Russia was very visible at the Munich Security Conference recently. There was a special session dedicated to transatlantic relationship. It was not a normal conference, but still in all the major speeches of Joe Biden, Angela Merkel, Emmanuel Macron, and many other leaders, Russia and China have been mentioned, although not together. Uh, Yanka, you and I have been to Munich many times, together and separately. Uh, do you feel the change and what what drives this change? Let's start with with China, probably, as that's the major focus of your work, and then talk a little bit about Russia and China. In one parcel. Yeah, it was quite interesting to hear the statements. The Biden administration made very clear that this is going to be, this is about democracy. This is bigger than just China. This is China and Russia together. It was a grand narrative that it, he was presenting to the Munich audience. And in that sense, the European response seemed very timid. It seemed very small. There was no vision from the side of either Macron or Macron. Both of them seemed slightly re restrained in their responses. Um, there is no real um, strategy so far in figuring out what the new approach to China looks like. It all seems still relatively haphazard, um, very short-termist, um, not very focused on kind of longer term, long arc, where are we in terms of systemic rivalry conversations. So the Europeans seemed very reactive and almost as if they were not pre prepared for a Biden administration. I mean, the Biden team was very clear up front um, in, in the in the run up to this, um, to the to the election, in, that they would want to integrate the allies. And one could have thought that the allies should have thought about this a little bit, um, preparing for for what is to come. And it didn't seem like it. It seemed like they were caught by surprise. But that also requires a consensus towards China in the European Union. Can we speak that there is a consensus, at least among the great powers or uh I know that you hate this term in Europe, uh, big players, big countries, what they appropriate slang. But uh, is there an agreement between the remaining members, like let's take UK outside uh, for a minute, but is there an agreement of what the policy, European policy towards China should look like and what are the major risks and opportunities out there? What's the balance between pragmatic economic interests security interests and concerns and values? So I would say there's a general shift that has taken place that was quite fundamental over the last two, th two to three years that has moved Europe much more into the skeptical camp. Um, and that is an across the board, you know, from Denmark to Portugal um, in Endeavor, where you see um, all of the countries and all of the leaderships just growing a lot more cautious when it comes to Chinese investments, when it comes to the question of how to interact. And it's not just this um, well, it used to be this like trade only. This is an economic question. This is not a strategic question. That used to be the case. That is no longer the case. 
Um, we do see a lot of nuances, though, in terms of what does that mean? What does that kind of entail then in the end? And in this case, we have had a number of conversations about the 17 plus one format, about the Eastern European countries and how they relate to China. Interestingly, the biggest problem that we are facing is Germany in this regard. German industrial dependence on China, German economic dependence on China means that there's kind of um, there's no driving force behind this on the on the European continent um, because the Germans will be and remain um, at the moment very timid when it comes to actually you know, redesigning and revamping the approach to China. And they're the most crucial player in this. So um, Europe's response is somewhat muted. Um, and it could be a lot more. So because there's an agreement on the fundamental problem that China poses, the fundamental challenges that China poses, there could actually be enormous momentum right now for a joint uh, approach. We're much more divided on Russia. We're much more divided on other policy issues than on the general assumption that China poses challenges to the European Union. So if there were German leadership on this, this could actually go places. At the moment, though, it's super absent. Uh, why does Germany not have a coherent China policy? Is it because of the domestic politics and the ongoing transition from Merkel era to post-Merkel era? Is it lack of consensus in the governing coalition or the broader German elite? Is, is it contradictions between the industrialists and the national security community? What is it? So the problem that we're seeing at the moment is that there is a slight disconnect. We have a um, a business elite that is actually growing increasingly skeptical because this is about the future prosperity of German industry. Um, if everything is then later on produced in China, if all of the know-how and innovation takes place in China, this is not good for sm small and medium-sized enterprises, for leadership um, in these sectors. Um, German companies have benefited very much from the Chinese market, but they're growing increasingly wary of technology transfer, IP violations, etc. This has become a real issue. So the BDI, the Federation of Industries in Germany, has actually been very critical and very pronounced in its um, in, in, in raising the topic that China should be looked at with a much more skeptical, through a much more skeptical lens. So it's not the industry that's the problem. In Parliament, you have a lot of parliamentarians from across the board being very skeptical, not just about China's human rights approach and current policies in the region, but also with regard to their the question of future economic prosperity and whether it is clever to grow dependent, the question of strategic infrastructure, Huawei 5G was a big discussion in the German parliament. But there is a stronghold, and there's the last kind of stronghold in the chancellery um, that is very reluctant to change policies vis-a-vis -vis China at the moment. And this means that um, because the policy is driven from there, um, there is a disconnect between where society, where the parliament and where industry has moved and um, the current leadership that is still very powerful in pushing this approach through. Uh, do you see that signing of the signing of the investment agreement has really torpedoed the opportunity for engaging the U.S. more, uh, or is it the issue that will probably disappear and the U.S. will move on and talk with Europe on broader term to frame a genuine transatlantic? a partnership on China that will involve European Union, the US and UK, obviously. So the comprehensive agreement on investment has not been signed yet, which is a good thing. It has been kind of generally agreed upon that one will do this now, um, which is the, that's the modus operandi that one found with the Chinese. So now it will have to go through the process of actually being signed, um, of, have, of having the full text of then discussing it in parliament. The European parliament will have to get involved. 
But the whole question around it was actually, it's more interesting for the politics around it than it is for the substance of it, actually. The substance of it is relatively slim. Um, it regulates a certain very small section of the relationship. Um, it is It incentivizes investments in areas that are to some degree um, beneficial, especially for the German industry, but also for other European industries. And it kind of banks on the approach that doing more business with China is a good thing. But since that is politically already debatable, whether that is actually the case or whether diversification is actually the way to go, whether growing more dependent on China and growing being more part of the China game is actually a good idea. Um, this has all been kind of in this in a mix of tools that the EU has been designing for direct investment screening, an ambitious connectivity agenda, the question of foreign subsidies regulation. So the comprehensive agreement on investment was always supposed to be that little box. It was supposed to be in that little niche and say, this is like the positive side of our engagement. This is one that, but because it has been blown out of political proportions by Macron and Merkel and the way this whole thing came about in this 11th hour um, conversation just before the Biden administration came in between Christmas and New Year, has been really problematic, the optics, the politics around it. And therefore, it has outsized in terms of the, kind of the, the other tools that are available, the importance now of the cooperative relationship. And I do think that that will have an impact on the transatlantic dimension. It will have an impact of how serious a player Europe is seen by the others, um, by the by Washington, and whether Europe will actually be a reliable partner for crafting and designing a future agenda when it comes to um, like how do we approach China in the future? The Trump administration had an aggressive counter China strategy. That's not something you can get the Europeans to sign on to. But the Biden administration is much more nuanced in its approach, and it's much more about kind of guaranteeing future prosperity for the U.S., for the transatlantic, um, for the transatlantic community. It's about where to engage with China, where not to engage, where to hedge, where to be careful. And there would be a number of opportunities for the Europeans to sign on to exactly that. But that's um, the hedging that is currently taking place is a bit of a schizophrenic uh, idea that the U.S. is coming out and saying. We couldn't do this by ourselves anymore now. This is this has become too big of a challenge. We need our allies and partners. And the allies and partners are like, we don't really believe this. They could do this by themselves if they really wanted to. And thus are hedging a bit against it. And so we are having this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy where in the end, we may get more unilateral action from the United States than actually the United States would want. And then we will complain about it in Europe again. Okay, very familiar. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yeah, it seems like we've been there before, right? Yeah, yeah we've seen that movie before <laughs> quite sometimes. Um, I think that uh, the debate on China-Russia in the U.S. has also moved significantly. I remember a couple of years back, some of the people that are now in the new Biden administration were kind of dismissing the China-Russia partnership. They're saying, oh, that's not an issue. It's nothing too deep, too significant that would concern us or our allies. It's more of a problem for Europeans because Russia is next door. Uh, I think now the uh, analytical understanding that that's an issue that has overarching security and economic, some technological consequences is there in the US. What's the European take? I think that from all of the senior leaders, we've only heard Macron in his famous The Economist interview discussing China and Russia. And his broader idea was like, oh, let's engage Russia. Let's bring Russia out of coal because it doesn't want to be China's vassal. Uh, is there any strategic conversation on that issue in Europe? And what are the major schools of thought? 
So the strategic conversation about the link between China and Russia is basically absent. And that's concerning in and of itself. We would still like to partition this nicely. Um, we have Russia relations and we have China relations. And particularly because we have different kind of nuances in our approaches among the different European countries, separating the two makes our life a lot easier. But unfortunately, the reality is not as such, and we will have to deal with it. I see an enormous amount of reluctance, though, to actually even intellectually engage with the, the, the question. So I think there need to be now conversations about where are the immediate areas where we can see the cooperation between the two on technology, on military technological developments, on security questions, on training, etc. in these areas, on, but also on economic questions. Where can we see that immediately having an impact the cooperation and the improving cooperation uh, on European security. I think that angle works really well for some of the Eastern European countries. Um, and it, I think it, it's one that is kind of um, where also you can get some of the Western European countries to understand um, cybersecurity is one of those areas. But especially the military dimension, I think, is very high on the agenda. Technology cooperation is very high on the agenda. Whether we will get to that point where um, there is a clearer understanding of how big the problem is that is emerging there in the east of Europe, um, I'm a bit doubtful. I do think it needs a bit more vision um, to understand um, the, 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 the enormity of the challenge that we could potentially be facing. And I do think that Macron's approach is not going to be enough. First of all, it really doesn't have any support among many of the European countries. And second of all, I think it does lack a certain degree of kind of grounding in reality of what we are already facing um, and understanding really where Russia and China are in their respective positions of why it is beneficial for them to work together. Uh, I agree with you. I, th I think that the Macron approach or the simplified version, because Paris never came up with a more elaborate and sophisticated version of what not making Russia a Chinese vassal would actually mean, uh, ignores the primary drivers of China-Russia relationship that would be there regardless of the relationships with the West. Uh, I think that sharing this enormous border, having complementary economic structures where Russia uh, is looking for new markets for hydrocarbons and for other commodities and China is still a giant consumer. And these similarities in the political regimes, not that they necessarily want to export authoritarianism abroad, but they definitely don't see issues like why would Vladimir Putin be concerned about Xinjiang? Uh, why would Xi Jinping be concerned about Chechnya or gay rights or Alexei Navalny? Uh, so that provides a lot of common ground. And I think that the whole theory of, oh, let's try to drive a wedge between the two uh, is naive in a way. And I would totally agree with you that there is a lack of understanding of which particular areas of cooperation are challenged to European interests and why and what to do about it. So do you think that lack of this kind of understanding is more an intellectual problem that Europe didn't look into that direction, doesn't have necessarily expertise, team of Russia watchers and China watchers working together on those issues, or this is a political problem as implied. So some politicians and some countries just don't want to, uh, are too afraid to look into this as one issue and prefer to keep Russia policy track and China policy track separate? I think, unfortunately, it's both. 
Um, and that's probably the most disastrous situation that we can be in, is that we don't have the intellectual background at the moment. We don't have the necessary work done at the moment on these issues. It becomes, I mean, it is an intellectual challenge because you need to straddle quite some ground to bring the two, um, to, to, to bring the two topics together. And we're just barely kind of coping with uh, handling the new China dimension to our relationship. And we're trying to figure that out. So I think all of that is a bit overwhelming, uh, not only from a kind of research perspective, but also from an intellectual perspective in politics policy circles. It's all the stuff that you now have to understand about this relationship that makes it really not very easy. Um, but on the other side, I think there is a big political, um, there are big political constraints about actually spelling this out, about putting the two in one box and say, this is a, this, these are separate problems, but they're also a collective problem. And I think we need to do both. I mean, we need to, we need to continue to have a, a Russia strategy in Europe that deals with the immediate questions that are in the bilateral relationship. And we continue to have, need to have a China strategy that deals with the bilateral conversations. But if we fail to do that link in between, we are having a, like a strategic blind eye that is not very good for us in terms of future. And I think this brings really back the security dimension into the conversation. There's an economic dimension to it, but this is very much the security link. And it is helpful in that sense for all those that still have problems seeing the China security challenge for Europe. Um, to bring the two together, actually, intellectually, um, because then it becomes a lot more palpable in a way for, for these conversations. And that also could help for the transatlantic conversation that we're having here. Yeah, you, you see Chinese Navy coming to European shores for joint military drills with the Russian. You see a lot of military activity happening together with the Russians, because that's a very convenient partner that takes all of the oxygen in the NATO discussion rooms when PLA Navy is just hiding behind the Russians, fronting them, but also trying to build this global reach and experience in operating in the absolutely new geography, which will probably the long-term uh, goal would be to be there on their own without our, their Russian partners necessarily. So do you expect this to become a topic of discussion for transatlantic uh, conversation and conversation between Europe and American allies in Asia, because that's definitely very much on the mind of the Japanese government uh, with Abe and now with Suga. Uh, that's a lot of uh, similar discussions happen in Seoul, not so many in Australia, probably, but this is like a newly emerging topics for conversation in Asia among democracies. Yeah, so we are in the process at the moment of designing a European, a pan-European Indo-Pacific strategy. Um, Germany has come forward with guidelines on the Indo-Pacific. The French have come forward with their strategy. The Dutch have come forward. And now we're in the process of doing that at the EU level. And if we duck these major strategic questions that are of key relevance to our Indo-Pacific partners in these strategy documents, then you will already see that we're not very serious about this. So I think if we want to be serious about these questions, then we will have to have that intellectual conversation. We will have to have that strategic debate. We will have to come to our own uh, conclusions. Am I extremely hopeful that that will happen in the very near future? Not. Um, I do think, though, that there is a growing understanding, and as much as it come as it comes to Europe from other sides, um, and and kind of in the conversations with the Japanese, also with the Indians, you know, in kind of where are these? Where are all the other strategic partners located at the moment? Um, we will be forced more so to have these debates. These don't come easy for Europe. That's for sure. 
But I think if we're in the process already of defining and designing an Indo-Pacific strategy, you know, we might as well. This is the right moment. This is the right time for asking these questions. Okay, it will be thrilling to watch the evolving European and transatlantic debate on it. I'm sure that ESFR will be one of the major voices as we are trying to be at Mama Carnegie. Uh, and that we totally should reconnect and compare notes on this probably in a year's time by the time of the next Munich Security uh, Conference. And if COVID permits, we definitely should meet over some nice dinners in Moscow or somewhere else and discuss that, Janka. That sounds like a good idea. I do think, though, that I hope that I'm proven wrong and that I'm too pessimistic when it comes to the strategic ability of Europe in this regard. I hope that European policymakers will prove me terribly wrong and we will be sitting here in a year's time uh, and I will have to say, well, um, it all turned out much better than I thought. Thank you so much, Janka. Thank you, Sasha. 